This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. Uh, this is Dave Vanderveen. I am uh, in Southern California this morning. And if you've listened to Kick Aspirational in the past, you know the purpose of this podcast is to help people break through barriers in their own life in fun and inspiring ways, uh, in ways that we call Kick Aspirational, Kick Ass in a positive and inspirational way. And this morning, it's early here, the sun's just coming up. Uh, I am in Southern California, but I'm talking with an uh, old friend from Wheaton College, a general surgeon and hand surgeon, Eric Nelson. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. And Eric, where are you this morning? I'm actually in my office in Prescott, Arizona at 5,500 feet in central Arizona. Well, that's amazing. You know, I forgot you're in Prescott. I, um, we'll get into our background stuff, but you know, one of my, uh, friend's dad's a friend of mine from Laguna um Jeff Booth who was a top professional surfer his dad Bob Booth uh, lives in Prescott most of the year and has uh offered invited uh, us to come out a few times and uh, so now I have two reasons to come out to Prescott to uh to watch you mountain bike and to or maybe mountain bike with you and, and see Bob Booth. <laughs> well it, it, it would be great it's a very delightful little town and it seems that all of uh California seems to be retiring here so Right, right. Everyone's uh, finding their way to Prescott. Yeah, Prescott, mostly Prescott, mostly uh, cops. Mostly <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, it looks like a beautiful place. High altitude, big pines, um, and lots of lots of great mountain bike trails. Right. Oh, uh, hundreds of miles. And Eric, just so uh, people know a little bit about you. Um, well, I mean, not a little bit. Let's start with a, part of the reason that we're doing this podcast is uh, we had reconnected um, via social media. Uh, you know, I don't know that we were that close in college, but we were on the same floor and, and, uh, obviously knew each other and, and you right. were a swimmer, right. uh, with my then roommate, Mark, Mark Netherall became a Navy SEAL. Correct. Um, and, uh, and so we kind of, we reconnected around some of those, those connections. And then you've actually come out to Laguna. We've done some stand up paddling and body surfing together. Yeah. And, uh, and then, um, we just stayed in touch and I, I think we've both been on journeys you know, maybe have surprised each of us a little bit since college, but um, we had had some conversations around some of the things that have resonated with you about this podcast. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. I think I had finally said, well, we should sit down and just do an interview because um, you seem like a prime candidate for kick aspirational. Okay. It surprised you a little bit, <laughs> but I think, I think the idea was, you know, and, and, and we'll get to it all, but the idea was that, um, you know, you are an entrepreneur as well as a physician, as well as a surgeon, and you hadn't intended that. Is that is that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's that's very accurate. I would say, yeah, I did not never intended to be a entrepreneur or business owner. Very different from most of your other guests. Yeah, and but you you kind of by accident found yourself there. Correct. Um, can can you can you just give us? I mean, that's kind of the punchline of this whole podcast, I think. But can you can you? Um, Maybe we'll start there and then we'll get into your background um, just so, to kind of hook, hook the listeners. Cause I think that's, that's, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. A lot of people were probably like, why would you have a doctor on the kick aspirational podcast? But I, you know, my dad was a physician with a private practice and you are an entrepreneur when you're running a private practice. I think the way you fell into it is a really interesting place to start this conversation. Sure. Well, you know, most physicians are not in a private practice, at least not anymore. And so, uh, I used to be the young guy and now somehow it's 20 years almost into a career. And now I'm the old guy who has the arch archaic, uh, you know, practice model. <laughs> uh, 
which is I just never intended it. You know, you 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 do go through life a little bit accidentally, um, making the decisions that get you to be into a physician. We can go into all that, but essentially, I finished my training at the age of thirty-one, and I'm finally looking for a job. I saw an ad for a little place in Prescott, Arizona, and I really wanted to be in the Mountain West. I uh, grew up in California and had enough of that. And um, so I responded to the job. My wife liked the town. We liked the town. I started working for my prior employer, my only employer. And I worked for that gentleman for uh, six years. And he really took great care of me. It was very fair. But at the end of our relationship, he really wanted me to be his partner. And I had enough. I was. It was an employee-employer relationship, but it was quite a, quite a small two-person surgical practice. I was doing all kinds of surgery, everything you can possibly imagine, uh, taking call at the hospital, being you know quite busy, uh, taking two cars everywhere. We had to go. I'm sure you remember this from your father growing up. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just never knew when you were going to get called to the ER for something. Right. So, at the end of this time, this gentleman really re required me basically to be his partner. And I just saw disaster on the horizon because an employee-employer relationship is different than a partnership relationship where there's both ownership in the practice. Right. And I could tell we were probably going to have enough disagreements that that relationship just wouldn't work. I could be his employee. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the I, you know what a lot of people don't understand is that a partnership is like a marriage, right? And, right, right. Um, you know, when you're, I always warn people about this, when you're getting into one, it's pretty, it seems like a lot of fun. Like, you know, you, it's easy to see the upside. The real question is, can you live together? And um, as, particularly when things get hard and right. if you have fundamental, if you have different values or different, um, you know, if, or, if, or if you don't have trustworthiness or there's a variety of things that make partnerships work, you know, if you don't have two people committed to adding value to each other and to their shared interests every day, you're not going to have a successful partnership no matter what kind it is. And right. I just foresaw a lot of conflict coming in and I just told the guy, I don't want to, I'll, I'll work for you. And it was great for me because I had a bunch of little kids right then. I didn't want to man, I didn't want to run a practice. I, I just wanted to get paid. Okay. Yeah. And, and maybe explain the difference. very fair with that, but go ahead. Yeah, no, but maybe, maybe explain the difference between running a practice and working at a practice as a physician. Well, okay, there's two parts to the job. One is you're a physician. So that involves all your training, basically, your expertise in, you know, seeing, uh, diagnosing and treating disease and getting to know patients and taking care of them. That is the doctor part of the job. Then there's the other part of the job that comes with owning a business, which means, you know, do you sign up with this insurance plan or that insurance plan? Do you pay I mean, as you know, any business has a million things. You've got to pay all your various insurances, your liability insurance, your your close insurance. I mean, I can't even get into it. You got to pay rent. You got to pay the electric bill. It's like having a separate household that you're managing uh, along with employees. And I was very happy to let him manage that side of things so long as I got paid. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you're an employee, you get paid first. When you're a partner and owner, you get paid last. Yes. So if things aren't you know, things aren't, if you're not making money, um, you're not getting paid, right? Correct. And you, you know, and he was doing very well by me in, in most cases. I'm sure he was making a little bit on me, but that's very fair. I, you know, that that's kind of his stipend if, uh, for taking care of all those details. Right. No, no. I, and I'm not, um, I'm not begrudging him that either. Um, right. I think. So what, what ended up happening was I, he gave me a really, really, 
he gave me an employment contract that was made to force me out of um, into a partnership. In other words, I got my pay cut to like a third of what it was. And so, you know, I'm not going to take that. And so my options are reject it and get a, go into a partnership with this gentleman or reject it and just say, I'm, I'm done here. Right. And I did not feel, I really felt very strongly. I did not want to be a partner with that person. And um, so we had, we rejected it, but that, that, at that point we're on about a, I think it was about an eight to eight week clock where my employment was over and I had no income planned after that moment. Um, in addition to that, we had four kids that were all little. They're probably under 10 years old. We just built this, you know, McMansion uh, in 2007. This is the end of 2007. So we overpaid for it. Yeah. Then the economy tanked and we couldn't sell our old house. And so just the financial stress and the general stress was so high at this point. I think for the only time in my life, I actually got shingles. I was just I just was maxed out stress-wise. But we had basically eight, eight weeks to create a business. Mm. And unbelievably, it worked out. I, I really say it's one of those God moments in your life that you're like, I can't believe this this happened. Uh, we got some really good advice from another local private practice. He says, here's what you need to do. Get the insurance, get a couple employees, get the, and here's, here's a whole thing. And he just helped me out so much. I'm so grateful for that. Here's the various steps. Yeah. And then I realized that once you do it, it really isn't that hard because I was doing a lot of this stuff, just managing a household over the last however many years. Right. Um, I ended up hiring, I took one employee with me cause she didn't want to stay at that place and hired a second employee who has been with me now 12 years. Wow. And then how did you get patients or customers? What was the process for that? That's a good question. So there's several ways that you get those. One is you get referrals from, as a surgeon, you usually get referrals from other physicians. So at my, I don't advertise at all. I barely have a website. And it's terrible. <laughs> if I'm honest, I don't put a lot of time into it. I don't take out a yellow pages ad or anything like that. Most of my referrals are going to come from other primary care physicians. Sometimes you'll get them from the ER where people don't have much of a choice. You're just on call that day and they end up being your patient. Um, and then it comes down to it's a pretty small town and there is a lot of word of mouth, but that takes time to build up. So after 18 years in this town, I get a lot of word of mouth um, referrals. Right. So that's basically it. Or somebody sees a bandage on somebody and says, hey, what happened there? And they say, oh, this doctor did this and this. And they'll they'll say good or bad about you for sure. And if it's bad, usually they'll <laughs> yeah. tell 100 people. <laughs> you know, right. Bad maybe works t 10x against you. Good work. It, it really does. Yeah. For yeah. You, right? yeah. yeah. That's, right. that's interesting. My, my father's, I think you know this, my father's a head and neck physician and had a private practice in uh, three cities in West Michigan. And, you know... You, you end up taking out everybody's adenoids, tonsils, you know, right. a lot of head and neck surgery that ends up happening as well. And the funny you, can't, you basically get to a point where you cannot go anywhere right. where someone doesn't say, hey, doc, or whatever, you know, and, and half the time, I, I really don't even remember what I did. Right. Uh, but they remember. And so that's the, you know, you get to be a important part of people's life for a short time and then... You know, well, you're on to the next thing. Well, it's, 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 it was, you know, growing up, my dad wouldn't go in the grocery store just because he couldn't, you know, it's like everybody wants to say something. Yep. And, yep. Uh, yep. and it's good. It's nice. But it's also, you know, makes it hard to get just errands done and things. And I think the, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was an interesting experience growing up being the son of a doctor because I didn't have to do any of the work. Uh, but I had the benefits of people, you know, who had 
my dad had helped, uh, you know, giving us favors or doing different things. So that was kind of nice. Do you have Brian. Prescott the same way? Do you have a lot of, uh, a lot of good relationships, a lot of friends who, you know, kind of reciprocate when you help them through a traumatic time? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have any great things, but I mean, I, I still have great friends. One of my, one of the guys I ride bikes with calls me up one day and says, you know, my wife has a breast lump and I'm like, okay, get her in. Boom, cancer. Boom, treat that. You know, and he's, you know, I don't, I'm not super close to the guy, but yeah. we still see him and he still says, hey, you saved my wife's life. And I don't look at it like that, but for him, that was a hugely, you know, that was a, just one of these milestone moments in his, in his personal history. And I got to be a part of that. And there's a lot of stuff like that. And we, we see each other and yeah. I don't know, as far as tip for tat, I don't know. We, we I, I have certainly picked up certain, certain benefits. Yeah, just certain people, certain vendors for various things. You talk to people about their lives. You get to know them. Everybody here, it seems like small business central here. So everybody's doing some kind of a side job and, yeah. or there's a lot of really interesting retirees. I, I noticed that part of part of your lifestyle, I mean, obviously you're a doctor, you work hard, you have, how many kids do you have? You have a wife and how many kids? I have five. Okay. Oh yeah. And right before the practice started, five days before we started, Heather comes up to me and says, gives me a Christmas card, says, Merry Christmas, we're having another baby. <laughs> <laughs> the two houses, another baby and uh, five kids. And, uh, and you know what? We started this practice and I, I was making money in two months. That's ridiculous. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Wow. I couldn't believe it. And so, you know, we had to put out a certain amount for the capital to build, you know, just equipment and stuff, but we never even had to go into debt or anything. It was, it was so amazing. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is a good story. I had something similar when, uh, probably one of the most, one of the more difficult times of my life. Um, it was, I was in Venezuela running, we did, I started a biotech pharmaceutical company with a friend and, uh, we got ended up getting embezzled. We had all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And it was during this time, we, my wife, we lived in Napa. We had one son. It was mid-90s. Uh, our older son, Skyler, was a couple of years old. And I'm in Venezuela in the middle of, you know, some really Wild West kind of entrepreneurship activities. Um, I mean, literally, we had guys with guns that had to make sure that when we had money wired down there, we could get out of the bank without getting mugged. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. But um it was at that time that my wife sent, told me that she was pregnant as well. Nice, There's yeah. nothing, I, I think for a guy, especially where you're kind of have that breadwinner mentality and you, you, you know, effectively you're the provider, you know, at least historically. Um, it's just, it's a, isn't that like kind of a crazy emotion? What did that feel like? I mean, I remember what it felt like to me when I was, when I'm in the middle of this wacky deal, you know, we're getting, we ended up getting embezzled. Uh, we had to declare bankruptcy briefly a chapter 13 where you pay it back, but still bankruptcy. And just, right. It was a nightmare. Um, and then you add like another mouth coming into the world that you're going to have to feed that of course you love and want, but it's like, Oh God, not now. <laughs> what, was, what was your, I'm not trying to put these emotions on you, but what was your, no, I get yeah, it. I get it. What was your feeling? Well, for us, I mean, we already had four. So I'm just like, well, whatever. <laughs> Here we go. Off, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's just gonna you're just gonna be a little bit less sleep and everything else. I wasn't thinking about the financial side yeah. of anything. I, I just feel like I was making it up as I went along. And and the amazing thing was it just it worked. I, I still kind of feel like I'm faking it. So, you know, as we built this practice, the patients came. We had plenty of business. Uh I was doing the ER after a year of being in practice. Uh I finally decided I after eight years of full time here taking an ER call. I was pretty burned out yeah. and, that, and that's on top of medical school residency and all that stuff where there was never a break from what we being on call. 
So I talked to the hospital and said, hey, can I take a sabbatical for a year where I just do, I'm just going to do outpatient surgery for a year. I'm not going to do any big surgeries, no, no colectomies, no lar- nothing that needs to stay overnight. And they said, oh, sure. They, they decided at that point that they were going to start paying doctors to take call. They had previously not done that. So I never got paid to take the call. Um, but the other doctors were like, hey, we're getting paid for call. That's more for us. Right. So I took a year off. And what I saw, this is about 2009, I saw my income go down about 15%, 1-5%. And I saw my hassles in life go down about 50%. And I thought to myself, this is a good deal. It's a good exchange. (laughs) Yeah, great exchange. And I never never went back. I mean, I haven't taken call then since then. And it has absolutely changed my life. And so if I look at the surgical practice over the last, now it's 12 years. I just was so shocked. That's why I texted you the other day. I can't believe it's been 12 years on my own. I was six years with someone else as an employee and 12 years now in my own practice, solo, no other docs. And of those 12 years, we have 11 years of not taking call. It, it's been kind of a process for me personally of streamlining uh, hassles. So for me, entrepreneurship is about, I, I guess I'm on the lazy side of things. I don't want, uh, I don't want to grow. I don't want to employ a bunch of people. I don't want to make this big impact in the world, you know, capitalism wise, which is probably why I don't always consider myself an entrepreneur. Yeah. But um, what it has allowed me to do for my own life is really streamline things. So if we find uh, certain insurances are bringing us a uh, subset of patients that are extremely needy, for lack of a better word. They're going to call you many times. These insurance companies are going to make you uh, fill out tons and tons of paperwork. That's a ton of office staff. We'll just assess that and say, can we do without this? And if we can, we just get rid of it. We don't want to deal with that stuff. So what we do, we've kind of streamlined the practice. And along the way, it's meant, unfortunately, dying to my ego and saying, I am no longer going to do this kind of work. I'm no longer going to treat breast cancer. Okay, that went away about five years right. ago. I'm no longer going to treat thyroid cancer. That went away, you know, around the same time because it required an overnight hospital. Stray. I'm now no longer going to treat colon cancer because that's a big involved sort of uh, thing. Right. So in some ways, it has shrunk my world um, clinically. And you feel like a little bit, you know, when you graduate as a general surgeon, there is nothing in, on earth that scares you medically or any kind of emergency. As I've shrunk back into this, you kind of feel like, man, this is kind of not quite the the exciting surgery life. But the other side of it is, hey, guess what? I'm working four day weeks. I I have a great life with my family. I can show up for anything my kids need. And we have plenty of, uh, you know, I have enough income. I could make a lot more, but I don't need to. We we were content living with what we have and we're able to be generous. We're able to... um, you know, we're able to just be around for the kids. Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed that, I mean, I've seen obviously on social media, some of the cool things you've been doing with your family. Um, you and your son have done rim to rim and I, I saw you just did it again. Uh, so the grand Canyon is, uh, top to bottom, 10 to it's 10 miles halfway to the river. Each is it each side. Or is it eight and 10 roughly? Well, no, the north side is much farther. So the south side's about eight miles to the rim. Depends which trail you okay. take. But uh, it's roundish eight miles to the river. And then the north side is about twice as far, so 16. So you're looking about 24 miles for a rim to oh, rim. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. So I didn't really think so much further yeah. on the other side. Is it? No, the north side is much further. Is it the yeah. same height? Is it about a mile? No, you go up an extra 1,000 feet on the north side. Oh, my side. goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did that. We, we did the, the Bright Angel Trail, which is the south side, right? And that's yes. so it's a shorter distance. We did it in a hundred 
that's the classic climb up out of the of, you know from yeah the- we did 120 mi- and we did, I'm sorry we did we did that in 120 degree heat which was I don't recommend no that's stupid yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better word I mean I I, I saw those pictures like you're kidding yeah we me. just didn't have a you know we didn't didn't really have much of a you didn't like have that. a choice. You're getting out. You got to get out. I think sometimes they have water on that trail, which is kind of yeah. Nice. They have they, there is water on the trail, and we had hydration backpacks. We were prepared for it, and and we did it fairly Good. quickly. My wife and I did it in about four hours. But the uh, you know we had some friends. One of our friends, Glenn Rogers, had just he'd had kidney trouble, and uh, um, you know he was lagging. And the problem is you can't. You really there really isn't a good way to hang back and wait for somebody. No, you need to move yeah. along. Yeah. So we just we took off and our group was in different stages. The younger, my son and his friends were way up ahead and, you know, we were probably 10, 15 minutes behind them. And then there were different, different people at different stages and there was water along the trail, but it was, it was a, you know, it was a significant effort. And when I was watching you thinking about that, doing rim to rim, I was like, how do you even do that? Um, it just, so, so you're going from, where do you start and where do you end up when you do rim to rim? For rim to rim, uh, typically if you're going, you can do it two ways. You can go north to south or south to north. The hardest part of a rim to rim hike really is the logistics of getting yourself around the Grand Canyon because the north rim is in this part of the world called the Arizona Strip, which is one of the most isolated areas of the whole United States. It's between the Colorado River going north to about Utah. Right. And you really, you have to drive about 200 miles to get around to the North Rim. So you're looking about a four or five hour drive to get to a a spot up there. And then by then, usually you're going to stay the night. So the first time we did it, we went, uh, we drove all the way around in an afternoon, camped, slept for like three hours, got up really early with, this was a Boy Scout trip, then got down to the North Rim. And then you drop off the North Rim, hike across to the South Rim. You go down the North Kaibab Trail. That's the main corridor trail on the North side. Then you come up the Bright Angel Trail typically. And the reason you come up the Bright Angel is because it's it's a little bit inside of a, a valley and there's water available. The other trail that goes up to the South Rim is called the Kaibab Trail. It is mostly on a ridge, so there's no shade and there's no water at all. So it's it's a much more deadly trail if you're trying to come out in an afternoon. you got to be very careful yeah. there. It's good for going down. Yeah. So that's that's what we did the one time. And that also saves you a thousand feet of climbing, but it's an extra thousand feet of descending, which as an old guy, I prefer to climb, honestly. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But, you know, the thing I liked about the Bright Angel was uh, coming from the, you know, we were on a river rafting trip where we got off the Bright Angel. Right. And it was just a climb. And I, climbs are not a problem, but uh, I'm constantly trying to keep my knees, you know, functional. Um Exactly. And, yeah, <laughs> it gets harder as we get older, right? So, uh, right. But, but right. I think this is a big part of your story. Is um, you know when you, you seem to get out there and push yourself and do things that maybe scare you a little bit. Is that is that a fair assessment? I like to. Yeah. I noticed that. Uh, I mean, whether it's a rim to rim hike, which is a you know like it's not only you know you have to. There's some technical considerations about where you're starting, where you're ending, how you, how, how you make those logistics happen. Um, but it's also, you know, that's a, that's a really substantial hike. Um, I mean, that's a marathon effectively, but going up and down, you know, canyons, uh, gorgeous hike, by the way, too, one of the most beautiful things I've ever done. Um, but then you, I've also noticed like when we were stand up paddling, um, and I, I didn't really realize this ahead of it. We, we took off in Laguna, um, out of, I think we were out at, out at Shaw's. And we went out around seal rocks, I think that day, which are two big rocks that stick up in Laguna that have a colony of seals on them. 
And okay. I think you had said to me, and I didn't realize this, that you were kind of nervous about sharks. Is that is that right? Oh, I'm terrified of them. I mean, I grew up in Southern California and I never got comfortable in the water ever. I mean, I, I never surfed, but I did do the uh, boogie boarding and it just was always cold and murky and, and you know, and I saw Jaws when I was Bro. seven years old. I just, you know, that was a bad idea. No, it's a bad idea for everyone. I grew up in, in freshwater and it freaked me out. I, you know, my dad used to make fun of me because I would, whenever the water swirled when we were water skiing, I think there was a shark there and, you know. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, there isn't, but you know, and you, your mind's just playing all these tricks on you. So I noticed when we were stand-up yeah. paddling, you you know, we were on these narrow narrower race boards. I think. Um, yeah, I know. I didn't have the skills for those. And that's for I, sure. you know, it's easy. It's it's easy for anyone to fall off, but those are really even trickier. And uh, I noticed when you fell in, you jumped out pretty quickly. <laughs> you didn't. Really oh yeah, an instant. <laughs> but you did it anyways. Uh, I think that's that's yeah. the most important. It's it's easy for people to have. Um, concerns about sharks when you're in the ocean, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of people. Um, in fact, I think I used to have that when we lived in Michigan, we'd go in the ocean in Florida, I'd be like, there must be, you know, you think the second you go in the water, sharks are just waiting for you to get in there so they can eat you. Um, which right. obviously isn't true either. Uh, but it's, you know, it's what I love about when we did that together. One is that you did it and I didn't even, I didn't know you had that fear and you didn't tell me and you just did it anyways. Um, but two, when you did kind of let me know that we went body surfing, I think we had kind of a remarkable afternoon. It was. Oh, the body surfing was the most fun I've ever had in the ocean, David. And the only reason I could do it really was because you were guiding me as far as, you know, here's how you do this and duck under here and do that. And it was amazing. I've never done that. Yeah. Before. You use your arm like a ski and you get into these waves and it's just, you, it's, I love body surfing. It's, I mean, I like all kinds of surfing, but that's one of the most fun ones. But, but I think, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to overstate this, but one of the things I sort of noticed was, um, I didn't know you had this fear. I noticed you're jumping out of the water a little quick. <laughs> so I said, you know, and then you kind of, I think you told me, and then, um, we went body surfing and I think part of, you know, falling in love with the ocean, you know, having these experiences where you learn to do something that you didn't know before, um, you feel the exhilaration of riding the energy moving through the water, um, uh, which is what a wave is effectively. Um, it kind of transforms what the ocean is for you. Is that, did you have that experience by putting words yeah. in? Well, that, that was a great positive experience on the ocean. I'll tell you, I haven't had a lot of them. So that, that was That's fun because cool. usually, you know, boogie boarding, you're getting smashed by whatever. I, you know, I didn't, I never knew what I was doing. And plus the Pacific it is did. cold. I don't know how else to put it. And, you know, the only time I ever had a really good time in the ocean was, you know, put on snorkel gear in Hawaii and all of a sudden I'm, I'm a fish, you know, I'm, I, I love life. I don't, nothing frightens me because the water's clear. I can see what's going on and I'm pretty right. comfortable because right. it's warm. Where'd you do that in Hawaii? I think one of the tourist uh, craters, we, we, we've gone a couple of times, one time to Maui with my wife at the, I forget the name of the oh, crater, yeah. but it's the place where all the Maui. tourists go. And then the next time we actually took the whole family to Oahu and we were on these little fake bays near the, it wasn't Disney, but it was near the Disney resort. They have these little, oh, yeah. they're just these yeah, little yeah. bays and you could go right. I mean, we could put the kids on the beach in a playpen and just go with the older kids and just snorkel all day long. It was kind of poly, I think. Yeah, no, that's, those are, those are awesome. Um, well, that's, you know, I think that's, you know, it's figuring out how to, and this is kind of what kick aspirational is about. We talk about, you know, scaring yourself a little bit every day, pro human progression, doing things maybe you didn't think right. you could do, trying them. Obviously it helps if you try it with somebody who can coach and, and mentor you a little bit through it. 
Absolutely, um, yeah. And I noticed that you're also doing a fair bit of powerlifting and a lot of mountain biking. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Is there a connection there? Well, okay. So here, the physical fitness journey is I swam in high school right. and college, and that was that was amazing. And I think it part that's part of the. I don't know what it is. There's this weird mentality. Maybe I'm still trying to prove something to someone, uh, maybe myself, that, you know, I can do the hard things. Uh, swimming is generally considered a pretty difficult sport. I'd say wrestling's maybe up there too, but just as far as the demands, workout demands are real high. There's always morning workouts. You're in California getting in the pool at right. 5.30 with steam coming off it. It's freezing right. cold. And then in college, it just takes up right. a lot of time. Um, after that, and I just, I think I just wanted to prove to myself that I could show up and do the work day after day after day. After college in medical school, I didn't do anything. In residency, I, I spent about seven years of my twenties doing nothing, which is a bad idea. Well, I don't you were recommend doing something. that. You just weren't doing physical uh, work, right? I wasn't yeah. doing physical stuff, and um, ran a marathon. Uh, about my fourth year of residency, I found enough time to start running, and I ran a fifteen, a twenty-five. I set a twenty-five k goal, and I had so much fun on that 25 K, which is about 15 miles. I just decided to keep training up for a marathon. I did the Chicago marathon, I think in 1998, then you kind of get out of shape slowly cause you don't right. focus on it and you're just busy with everything then residency and everything else. So I'm probably about 32 years old, get to Prescott and I start to ride my uh, mountain bike again. Now I have a, I grew up on a bike in Southern California. Biking was my, my love language. I mean, it's the thing I love more than anything. It combines my love of tinkering with mechanical things with a chance to be out and just feel like you're flying. And so I get up here and I'm dying. I mean, it is, it is really steep. There's you're at fairly decent altitude and there's just, there's no flat areas. So, but eventually I get myself into shape. And then what I end up doing is start uh, just incorporating the bike into my day-to-day -day life. And I started riding to work, rode to the hospital, rode to the surgery center. I was that guy, you know, the doctor coming in on the bike every day. And it was kind of a joke, really. Uh, everybody hear me clicking along in my little shoes. But I had up a great commuter setup. I could go and anything. And I spent about six, eight years doing that at my old practice. I got in great shape just by incorporating that into my daily life. Became very obsessed with bikes and mountain biking and, and became, you know, I think pretty good at it. And uh, somewhere around 40-ish, 45-ish, I realized I've been biking real hard for 10, 15 years here. I'm really good at biking, but I'm not good. I, I just didn't feel like it was a balanced thing for my body. So I picked up uh, weightlifting and I always hated weightlifting uh, in the swimming days because it wasn't something I was right. interested in, but it's, it's a real fun sport because it's so you can, uh, you know, if you're a number crunching kind of person and you're a consistent kind of person, you see those numbers go up. And if the numbers go up, you're clearly right. having more fun, right? You're progressing. You're progressing. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's fun to see something that you can still progress at and get better at when you're, you know, well into your 40s. So anyway, I picked that up and then I kind of maxed that out over about four or five years. And now I just decided it's just something I do. You know, you, you, move, you, do, you move your body in all the different ways and it doesn't really matter if the numbers go up or not. You just want to stay consistent and uh, be a little more balanced. But I definitely was trying to prove something. Yeah, I need to send you our excess muscle multiplier. I know you, as a doctor, maybe, you know, some of this stuff seems sounds a little gimmicky, but um, we, you know, we worked with this, uh, a, a physician is one of the leading protein synthesis experts in the U S who, um, and this isn't a plug for the product necessarily. I, when I hear these kinds of things, it, it excites me and particularly as a 50 year old, right. you know, a fellow 50 year old, I, I, I right. know how the body, you know, it gets harder to build lean muscle mass as we age, but the, um, they did a lot of work with people who were like in burn units, pediatric burn units at Harvard or astronauts who are, you know, weightless so you have atrophy issues 
and they're able to, uh, right. to reverse atrophy just with these uh, this amino acid mix. Um, but it, it, it really helps amplify protein synthesis, which is you know what you're trying to. The, the whole point of right of lifting is breaking down the muscle tissue and then rebuilding it, and having having the right nutrition right. to do that can can help uh, you know speed that along or improve that. But we've seen some really interesting results with older people in particular. Um, who, you know, were struggling, you know, basically hit walls. Um, I'd love, I'd love to, yeah. n- you know, no pressure. I'd just love to send some to you and see what you think and see if you see any benefit. Be interested to get your feedback, particularly with your consistency that you put in. Um, how much, how much are you lifting right now when you're doing your squats? It, look, it looks like it's quite a bit. No, actually I've, I've backed off. So I, I was trying, really trying to hit, I think, so I maxed out about three or four years ago. It took it, if you want to max out and in, in powerlifting, you need to be very patient. Some people say you need almost a decade of lifting experience to do it. I started kind of late, and in your forties, you're just not going to build that much muscle. What you're going to build mostly is neurologic pathways where the muscles that you do have fire more efficiently. So, you know, over the course of two or three years, I only put on about ten pounds, which isn't a lot of muscle. And, uh, you know, if you're serious about this kind of sport, you got to eat like right. you mean it. And I just didn't want to be that heavy because it, it slowed me down in other right. areas of my life. And I, I couldn't handle that. So I've actually lost all that muscle now. It's all gone. And I'm about down to my about 170 pound range. So now I've uh, I increased. So if you want to get strong, you got to do low rep sets, meaning really heavy weights for right. low reps. Um, I. That's also quite stressful on the body. So after you do those sets, you are pretty well done for a couple of days. And I just found I couldn't do other things I wanted to do. So I backed off of that. And now I'm just doing Amen. more, I always call them easier workouts. They're, you know, is in the 10 to 20 rep range. And I just do full body stuff about every other day. And then I mix it up with some running and biking. What's your workout? So, are you doing a lot of intervals? Are you doing um, lighter weights? What do you what do? You- I'm doing so. I'm doing lighter weights, the, whatever a lot, whatever weight I can handle for somewhere between ten and twenty reps. Yesterday, I dropped my rep range down to ten because it had been a long time since I did it. So I loaded up at one eighty five on the squat bar, and was doing that for about eight to twelve reps, and that really blew me apart. But typically, if I'm going to do twenty rep sets, I'm only doing right. one hundred five, and you know, probably I could one rep max somewhere in the two. 60 to 70 range but again i, I don't really yeah. care about that so what was your peak? i did it one time yeah. so you know so for deadlifts yesterday i was doing sets of about 10 to 15 at That's 135 no and and, yeah. and i assume that helps your your cycling quite a bit when you're got, you're building up your quads and and well. no it doesn't i mean what what helps cycling yeah, yeah. is cycling and uh, I did notice I could push a bigger gear. Okay. So I, I, I do a lot of really steep, slow speed type work right. on rocks. And I did see, you know, when I started lifting weights, I was able to recruit those muscles for those little bursts of whatever. But if I wasn't out cycling consistently, I would lose the interval fitness that I needed. You know, just basically the ability to breathe fast. So you're strong as heck, but you're keeled up over the bars after about right. 30 seconds. So there's really, there's nothing better than doing your sport. If that, if your sport is your thing, your sport is great. It's good to have a, a I think a supplemental weightlifting routine with everybody should be lifting weights because of just for bone strength, for aging gracefully. Um, I would t- direct people to a guy named Dan John, D-A-N space J-O-H-N. And he'll, he has basically six different things you need to do and just start incorporating it into your life. It's just so healthy for you. So there, you know, there's, there's four basic movements. There's a push, a pull, a hinge and a squat. 
And then, uh, you know, you figure out how ways to do those things and ways that challenge your body and change up the movements every day. And unless you're a power lifter or a professional bodybuilder, you don't need to get a lot more complicated. Right. And this is a guy named Dan John. Dan John. He's a, he's a great coach and he's got really good uh, information. Oh, that's amazing. So I wish I did intervals, but I don't have the mental toughness to do them. They're just so punishing. Uh, I, I just hate them. I will do sprints every once in a while, but it's just mentally, I'm, yeah, I'm too weak. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. We, I've, I've kind of shifted to intervals just because I don't have a lot of time and it's, it's a more efficient way to get right. out, you know, sweat through your shirt. It's extremely yeah. efficient. Oh, speaking of interval, have you, I, I got to tell you the thing that scared yeah. me the most in this last yeah. year that I tried. Uh, starting back in January of 2019, I started jujitsu. And I only lasted three months. Okay. So the, the end of the yeah. story is I quit. But honestly, going into that. You tried it. Yeah, yeah. I tried it. But it was it was the scariest thing I've ever done, Dave. How so? Well, first of all, I'm just not used to going into this place with a bunch of other people you don't know that are kind of sweaty and stinky. You're, you're, I'm, I'm an absolute novice. I really know nothing. So you're going from a place of expertise to a place of just complete right. – I know nothing, right? And you're you're learning, but to me, the learning is the fun part. But part of learning in jujitsu involves sparring, and you get in there with people who are much more experienced than you, and you just get crushed. I mean, you're you're basically underneath another male human. First of all, I don't like people in my space, right? Well, this is as close in your space as you can get that isn't you know with your partner, right? right? Yeah, you're, <laughs> and, you're uh, dudes, these people right? are yeah. on you. I said, I said What's you're, that? you're you're wrestling with dudes on a mat. You're wrestling with really sweaty, hot dudes on a mat. Not hot as in attractive, <laughs> but hot as in hot. And uh, you are just absolutely – you're underneath this guy right. and you can't get free. And it's claustrophobic Painful. and it's uh, very uncomfortable. And you can struggle and everything. And then on top of that, then you imagine throwing an interval. This is what brought it to mind. Throwing an interval training on top of that. Right. So you're out of breath because you're working your butt off and this guy's just sitting there holding you down. It was a very uncomfortable experience, but you know, I did eventually get a little bit more comfortable. I wouldn't say I got totally comfortable, but after three months, I just realized I'd had a separate, you know, I separated a rib. I messed up a finger and I'm like, I don't think I, I maybe this isn't the best thing. No, for I was going to ask you if you had any injuries. Um, I did, I did karate um, for about, I don't know, about 10 years. Um, and the, yeah. you know, I was traveling a lot, so it was hard to progress through belts. Um, but I have, I have an, I grew up fighting. So I, with my, particularly my older brother a lot. So you know, I had this, I did have some natural uh, speed with my hands and things like that. And, and I enjoy fighting. So the sparring part I loved, um, but it is, it is, I mean, a three minute spar, you know, three minutes is you're, everyone's sweating through their gi and you're, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and, and you also, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting is it's pretty hard to figure out who's going to be good in the ring until you get in the ring. You know, the idea that, you size somebody up and you figure out if you're going to win or lose is doesn't really work that way. I mean, you might have reach, you might have other things, yeah. but if somebody has speed or technique or combinations that you're not used to, you know, it, things can go badly really quickly. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was one of the better things I did just in terms of confidence, understanding and figuring out even that you might improve in fighting, also realizing why you never want to get in a bar fight. <laughs> Yeah, any anything can go wrong. Yeah, I, I have very good memories of being dominated by some sixteen-year-old. I think the kid, he must have weighed right. one hundred and ten pounds. There's no way he's right. as strong as me, and he just 
literally dominated me. I mean, he submitted me like five times in three minutes. It was, it was, it was just hilarious. One, one of the like, things okay. I noticed, my, so my, my younger brother, who's eight years younger than me, you know, we didn't grow up fighting at all. He, um, he's also a decent right. fighter. And we, we ended up, um, going and we started in two different sides of a round robin sparring event, large sparring event in Southern California. We ended up in the quarterfinals against each other, I think. And, uh, I was still under 35 and, and, uh, he got me, it's three point sparring. So I think he got me on the first two points cause he was just, he was quicker. And, um, and then I put this whole like older brother, like I got in his head, I think and ended up winning the spar that that contest but um i was thinking you know man it's tough being at the high end of 35 with all these young guys in here you know there's 18 year olds there's 20 year olds etc who are really quick and so i thought man when i get to 30 over 35 it's gonna be so much easier i get to over 35 and what what you lose in speed there's all these guys who've been doing this for you know decades who have tremendous confidence Yeah, yeah And uh, it didn't get any easier. It's just, it's really fascinating. I think it's, and it's a great thing for people to jump into. There's, I would say there's, there's no age where you shouldn't try it just to, just to learn something about yourself. I I think it's interesting that in a lot of sports, including mountain bike racing, you know, running, that sort of thing, the most competitive divisions are the 40 to 50 year old range. And I don't know if it's a bunch of guys just kind of (laughs) getting, feeling like they're getting older and they, they just really want to prove themselves but man it's it's intense and in in that particular yeah i think people actually have time and money to to invest in it at that point too right? yeah. well that too you know you're not working 100 percent of the time you're starting to get at a place where hopefully you can relax yeah. a little bit um you have tell some us hobbies. about your your family if you don't mind um you, how long have you been married to heather 1996 so i think we just had 22 years wow. and you've yeah. got five children Five children, uh, ages eleven to nineteen. Three boys and two girls. You got a, lot, a lot of Indians, only and, two chiefs. Um, <laughs> well, it's great actually. I, I love having teenagers right now. I'm going to take my daughter today, my middle daughter, to go take her driver's test. So we'll have three drivers and all the fun insurance bills associated <laughs> with that. But it's been really fun teaching the kids to drive, and my two girls are just yeah. delightful. Um, my oldest son's fun too. I mean, he's got all. They all have their own little. Uh, just quirks. I, I loved having teenagers. I don't know how, what your experience was, but people said it was going to be awful, and it's been just a well, wonderful I think so you, far. You know, I think I know you a little bit, and I think from what you said, you know, you're very involved in your children's lives, and you're doing things with them on a regular basis. Is that is that right? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, actually, it's kind of the whole driving thing's been kind of fun because you get focused time with that particular kid. I mean, you're yelling at him in the car, don't do, you know, whatever. But at the same time, it's it's kind of like time. It's just kind of dad time, which is something you don't always get because usually when people get home, everybody gets on their devices or there's not as much a thing. But we always prioritize dinner uh, with the family, which I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. But we try every night to sit down. We're all going to eat together and not much comes in between that. If I have a hot, and that's part of the problem with jujitsu is always during dinner time. So I was, you know, I, I just couldn't sustain. I just said, this is not how I want my life to be. I don't want to be gone every right. day at six 30 or five 30 to six 30 for that sort no, of thing. It. So, uh, we try to avoid activities during no, that time. Smart. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think for me, it was the same. I mean, my kids were in surf team here and I coached soccer and, you know, we had, when they were in, you know, particularly elementary school, middle school, early high school, you know, we had a half pipe at the house and a lot of kids would come to our house to hang out because we had a lot of the stuff that they, you know, made their life more fun. Um, 
And, you yeah. know, so between, you know, the cool thing about surf team, as an example, is you're, you know, you're taking your kids to get in the ocean at, you know, kind of like swim team, you know, before school. So you're getting up at dawn, going to the ocean, going to surf, surf practice. And I'd go surfing with them. So the fun thing that I, and same with soccer, right. you know, I'd pick up the kids at school, drive them up to the field. We'd have our practice. Um, and the thing I noticed was when you're with them doing things, especially, I don't, I can't speak to girls as much, but for boys, um, whether they're in the backseat of the car or, you know, talking to their friends or you're in the water and they're talking amongst themselves, they really forget that, that there's a parent there and you hear everything. And our, our whole thing with our kids was, I just yes. wanted, I didn't want any boundaries there. I kind of wanted open conversations that I frankly couldn't have with my right. parents. Um, I mean, you think about it when, when we were teenagers you know 16 the average you know the number one cause of death for 16 year old boys was drunk driving and so for me Mm. it was like you know zero tolerance for drunk driving don't care if you want to have a drink but um you know it needs to be under super you know it needs to be at a home where we have relationships with parents where this is we kind of agreed that we're going to do it a certain way uh kind of a european style and there's zero tolerance for drinking and driving and you know that 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 worked for us um so that by the time they went to college, they weren't the shit show. They kind of had their, their act together. Um, but right. I don't recommend that for everybody. That's, that's what we chose to do. But um, I, I think just being involved in their life where you're doing things with them, I think particularly with boys. When I was coaching soccer, um, I played a little bit at Wheaton. And the, you know, the thing I noticed going through soccer programs was this British method of drills where you've got young kids standing in lines waiting to do some activity with a soccer ball. Um, rarely translates right. on the field versus, you know, the, the Dutch style, which I'm a little biased there, but the Dutch school of a lot of short-sighted games, teaching kids through play, you know, making the three-on-three mm-hmm. games, things like that, doing that with them while they're moving, they seem to be able to hear you. When they're standing in line, they're fidgeting, they're goofing off, they're doing all these different things. It's almost like Charlie Brown, wah, 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 you know, all they can hear from adults is wah, yeah, right, wah, wah, right. wah, wah, wah. And once you start moving with them, their ears open up, they, they engage, they think, you know, just it's things, the, the, the neurons start to connect. And so for me, it was always trying to get out and do stuff with the kids rather than sit around and talk about something, which, which at least for my boys, wasn't, you know, wasn't always the best way. Yeah. How, that makes um, sense. how did, and tell, tell me about, if you don't mind, just, do you have any, uh, how are you able to keep your relationship with Heather, with your wife? It seems like you guys have a great relationship. I've seen you together, but you know, you're doing, doing a lot together. You're, you seem like you have a very active, uh, marriage, uh, relationship. What are the things that you're doing there that are working and what are some of the big lessons you've learned over the years? Well, Heather and I both are on the introvert side of things. She's much more so than me. I'm probably, you know, you know, she's a 10, I'm a, Mm. I'm a three. Uh, that's to the introverted side, you know, with zero being the the, kind of the balanced person. Um, we say no to a lot of stuff that that, that's all I can tell you. I mean, there's just, we're just not going to go out and do every little thing on our own that we want to do. So 22 years of marriage, number one, I really like her. She's an, she's an interesting person. She's beautiful. She's kind. Uh, I mean, she's just, yeah, she's amazing. And so that helps. Uh, secondly, I think we, we tend to see eye to eye on the important things, which is how are you going to prioritize your time? How are you going to prioritize your time together? We do prioritize time together, but we also get a lot of time together just, you know, at, at home. We don't have cable television. Uh, 
we don't, you know, I, I don't waste a lot of time anymore, at least on social media. Um, I'm, I'll post stuff, but I rarely read stuff, which is yours always seems to pop at the top of the thing because you're so active. So that's always kind of fun to check in. Where's <laughs> Vanderbeen today? Um, which is kind of a game we Very play. Cool. Uh, but it gives us see. That's how we maintain our embassy, David. Is we 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 guess where you are and then we talk about it. Yeah, um, yeah, no, yeah. that's a joke. But anyway, then that's so, good. Uh, what else? What else? I mean, we we just we just try to make time. We we probably get away. You know, the, the all the marriage books say, "Oh, you need to get away for a couple's weekend every quarter and uh, such and such." I mean, give me a break. I mean, that's right. not real life. Nobody can really do that. But we do try to get away maybe once a year for a three or four day weekend together. Um, but I don't think that's the thing that builds our intimacy. That's the right. thing that celebrates it. Um, the intimacy is just built every day by being honest with each other, by caring for each other and uh, looking out for each other. I don't, I don't really have a, I don't know that I have a key for it. I just like being around her. But that being said, we both have our own thing. She likes to take her daily walk and she does that. And I'm not too interested in that all the time. Although I'll go in the summertime, I like to go do my, my stuff and she gives me my space when I need to do that. You know, introverts need their time in the cave. So when I, you know, as a doctor, it's forced me way out of my shell that I need, you know, I'll see 20, 30 people in a day and have all these interactions, not just with patients, but with staff and all these other sorts of things. And I kind of, that is always a struggle for me to put on. It's not really, I'm not, it's not like I'm putting on a persona, but I do want to be a good leader and I do care about these people. But there comes a point where I'm just like, just put me in a cave for a couple hours so I can just be alone. Well, I, I think there's a really, I'm, I'm guessing you've read it. There's a book called Quiet. Um, there's a TED Talk as well. I actually haven't. I think you, I saw Sarah put it up as a as a link one yeah, time. Yeah, there's a TED talk you can watch, on. which is saves you the time, but the um, gives you most of the information. It's actually my. I mean, I think the book's excellent, so I shouldn't say it quite like that. But you know, it's a good place to start. But the okay. idea is, it's you know that one that you know whether you're introvert or extrovert really isn't about whether or not you like being with other people because there's a lot of introverts who like being with other people. But it's more like where do you get your energy? Do you get recharged from being around people, or is it is it draining? And I think you, you know, like like you're saying, when right. you're an introvert, you can love being with people, you can love helping people, you can have all those things. But if it's if it's draining to you, if you need to go to the cave to recharge, then you're an introvert. And that and they kind of get into that and how like open like there's offices now that have moved to these open plans where there's there's no privacy. Everyone's at these big tables. Oh my gosh, <laughs> right. that'd be horrible. And, and 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 so like Herman Miller has developed um a whole a, a series of of uh, office furniture uh, programs around this book Quiet recognizing that one, you know, there's a lot of people where these open office plans are are awful, two that, you know, collaborative work environments aren't actually that effective that most great work actually happens alone. <laughs> right? And then um and that, you know, you, you can come together and get things done collaboratively, but it usually has to be really well structured and there has to be a lot of pre-work to make that happen, which has been my, you know, I, I hate standing meetings for that reason. It's just, it's just a waste of time most of the time, unless you really have an agenda and, and pre-work that, that gets everyone on the same page ahead of time. Oh, no, I can't stand meetings. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, Yeah. Well, so what, what, what is it about? I mean, you know, the other thing you asked about Heather, unlike what they say in the marriage books that, you know, opposites attract, well, yeah, we're yeah. actually quite a bit alike. And so that, so the advantage of that is we don't have a ton of conflict. Uh, the disadvantage is we have a lot of the same, probably, um, what would you call it? Weak areas or blind spots. So anyway, how do you and Sarah keep it together? 
Yeah, well, I mean, all the you time, know, I set man. the bar low. Uh, I think I think happiness is all about expectations, <laughs> and uh, you know, I set the bar really low when I, we got married, and I just keep stepping over that low bar. Um, <laughs> when, when my brother Joel was getting married, we were down in uh, Mexico for his wedding, and you know, my toast for them was I said, "Look, you know, Joel, you do the dishes, you cater to your wife, you do all these things that you know everyone tells you you're supposed to do, and you do it." He does it because he loves her. I said, "But man, you're blowing it." Like, you know, she's going to jumping over that thing the rest of your life. It's harder as we age. But no, I, I and I that was in jest, obviously. I think, you know, I think a lot of what you said is really true, which is um, I think it does help to have a lot, you know, especially if you're going to build a life with somebody, you can do it, you know, as people who are different opposites attract. But but it's hard to build a life that way. Those things become tend to become bigger over time. I think common, having a lot in common helps. You have a common understanding. But then to your point, you know, like wanting to be around them. Robin Kristen Bell did this book who we went to college with, you know, we did this book called The Zimzum of Love. And their whole, you know, that whole thing is about, he, he basically said, you know, the reason I knew I needed to marry Kristen was I, I couldn't stand not being with her. It was, you know, it was harder. I, I couldn't imagine my life without her. And I think that when you when you start there, and I wanted to get to that, how did you guys meet? But when you start there, um, and you can't live without the other person, despite the differences, then you start, you know, you start thinking about how do I invest in this person? How do I change myself? How do I make myself more value to my partner rather than how do I extract value out of this partnership? I think that has been probably the biggest thing for us is just whenever I get frustrated or feel like I'm not getting what I'm supposed to get. That's a, that's a self check for me, not a, not a, a time for me to say, well, my partner's doing something wrong. It's a time for me to say, what am I doing? That's generating that response. My partner, does she know, does that person know that I'm, that I feel this way? And, and what do I need to change about myself so that I feel better about this relationship? How do I invest more? You know, it's never about changing them. It's always about self self-improvement. I think that's been a, not that we're perfect at that. We have the same frustrations. I think everybody does, but, but it's, it's how you re- respond to it that I think helps a lot. Um, how did, how did you meet Heather? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, I'm six years older than she is. So I was going to medical school in Rockford, Illinois and attending the free church and helping out with the uh, high school youth. <laughs> so there just happened to be this ultra hot babe in the youth group. And she, when she, I mean, literally David, when she would walk by, I would not even look at her. Cause I'm like, if I look at her, I'm <laughs> lusting all over her. <laughs> so I'm trying to stay all pure. Well, she just, dis- I never really talked to her much then. And uh, she disappeared, oh, yeah. went to My Hope College to Hope. near where you grew up. She comes back, uh, you know, on some breaks. I saw her on some breaks with this like six five looking dude, looking like Lurch, and I'm like, "What the heck? She's some she's dating this weird guy, you know, like some weird. artist guy." And then uh, that was like, you know, and then she comes back uh, over the summer, and actually, some one of I, I met a guy from Wheaton. We were mountain biking together in Rockford, and we were going through something and talking, and we we're saying, "Who'd you like to ask out?" And he's like, "Oh, you should ask. You should ask this girl out. I, I couldn't do it, but you can do it." So I'm like, okay, I just called her up and asked her out. She's like, oh, I can't go today, but I'll go some other day. And I had met her and talked to her at church and stuff. So she's now, you know, she's fair game. She's uh, finished her freshman year at college and she's on summer break. So we talked, we had a mutual friend. I don't know if you knew Steve, Sch- Steve Schaefer at Wheaton, his short guy, kind of a wrestler. He wrestled oh, wow. and swam, which is a weird combination. Anyway, uh, he knew her from their, her, 
anyway, their moms were best friends. So we had talked a few times. I finally asked her out and that was it. You know, it was first, uh, you know, sparked right away. Went, got a pizza oh, and girl. dated that whole summer. Got serious, dated long distance. Then uh, I looked at um, residency. Pro- I was bound and determined I wanted to get back west because uh, I've been trapped in the Midwest at this point for eight years. And then I started looking at residency programs in uh, Michigan and ended up really liking the Grand Rapids program better than any place else I visited. And they wanted me to. And so I ended up at Grand Rapids. So we dated another year, the first year of my residency. Uh, She was at Hope and I was in Grand Rapids. So we could see each other quite a bit in the weekends. But by then I'd had enough. I'm like, let's get married. So we got married in my second year of uh, residency. Well, I was in the Blodgett St. Mary's program. They have since merged and they actually merged my final year there. So I spent time at all three hospitals. But I was okay. technically yeah. in the Blodgett program. My, uh, my dad was at Butterworth for a little while. Um, so, anyways, similar similar program. Yeah. Um, well, that's really fascinating. So, you, I mean, so you had some a lot of common. I mean, you you went to the same. You had this share of faith, or you shared a faith. You um, had mutual friends. I mean, so there was a lot of common common ground that you shared when you were when you were meeting each other. Is that is that fair? No. Um, yeah, I mean, she, I don't know. She, she, <laughs> she was hot <laughs> and I, uh, and I liked her and she was nice and she was good to talk to. And, uh, she liked me right away. She just said, Eric, when I saw you, I, I liked you right away. And I can't say there were a ton of girls that liked me right away, uh, with all the quirks and that sort of stuff. I never oh, had wow. a girlfriend. She's my first girlfriend. I mean, that's crazy. Well, that's never, uh, anyway. That's, yeah. That's first the only girl, one you first needed, girl I ever right? kissed. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, that's a, that's an unusual story. That's, there's a lot, not a lot of people that, you know, the first girl they meet post-college um, and have a serious relationship with is the one they marry, but it's a, that's a great one. And it seems like it's stuck. It seems, seems like you guys get yeah. along really well. Yeah, it's great. No, that's, it's, that's uh, I have no regrets. So if you don't mind, I'd like to, the last thing I'd like to get into um, with some people, with the right people is uh, talking about kind of what it all means. Like where, where do we come from? What's this universe about? I know that we both went to Wheaton college where we, you know, went in order to go there, you're a Protestant Christian effectively. Um, what, uh, where are you on this, uh, journey about, you know, with, with the universe and where things come from and why we're here and, and what it all means. I, I wish I had a good answer for you. It seems that the philosophers have struggled with this as well. I, you know, I come from the evangelical free church tradition. It's a good Swedish, uh, you know, Protestant denomination that uh, my parents took me to and then uh, went to Wheaton and felt very strong in my faith there. Felt like I learned a lot. Felt like that was really a home for me. You know, coming from, I had a very strong faith as a, as a teen, but was in a public school setting where that was, you know, cons- pretty much constantly challenged. And coming to Wheaton was like a breath of fresh air for me. I'd never been around, you know, that many Christians or that many white people to uh, <laughs> say that as well. You know, Southern California, as you know, is very racially mixed. Uh, anyway, so you go to Wheaton and that was a great experience. And then on and uh, just never had much in the way of doubts or questions or anything, probably until the, about the last five years. And then now I, uh, I don't know, I guess... I'd like to look at things and say, is this true or not? And uh, you've been sending me all these philosoph- philosophical things on, you know, science and how science can't necessarily answer all our questions. And I don't, I don't think it can, but it's pretty good at modeling sure. what reality is, I hope. 
And unfortunately, science doesn't really have a category for the face side of things and the, the feelings that you see. And it doesn't actually have a category for what's the purpose of the universe. Because the scientists would say, well, it's all going to end in the entropy, heat death yeah. of the universe and entropy will increase and everything will quit spinning yeah. and, and it'll well, be, no, no, I, you know, I, that's it. I think to your point, right, there's, there's different um, tools for different questions. And it's not to detract from science. I, I think most scientists, I mean, Brian Greene said this, who's a you know, pretty famous astrophysicist. You know, he said, look, you know, science is designed to answer the how questions. and faith traditions or, you know, right. whatever spirituality or however you want to refer to it are there to help us understand why we're here and to try and use either tool for either sets of questions, you know, to try and use religion to answer scientific questions or vice versa generally leaves us with very unfulfilling answers, you know? Um, but so, right. so do you, right. are you, um, obviously you grew up going to a lot of church and spending a lot of time in religion. Are you still uh, involved in, in a religious tradition or have you kind of shifted out of that? Well, I would say, you know, I grew up not just involved. I mean, I was a definite uh, evangelical, right. you know, all the right. Bible type uh, Christian. And it was until a few years ago. But I, I just felt like in some ways uh, the church was not treating the right. science that's out there, honestly. And so that kind of burned me a little bit. And then I just kind of got tired of going to the big uh, show on every Sunday and, and right. you know, missing a nice day outdoors. So we we sort of, we dwindled away from the church about three years ago and uh, have just honestly no, just enjoying cool. a quiet faith at home. And, you know, I, I still pray. I still read the Bible every day. But at the same time, I, I guess I'm at a point in my faith where I've lost all the assurance that, you know, I feel like I guess Mother Teresa the last 50 years of her life or something had no feeling of religious experience. And I would say I don't have a religious experience. I don't or very rarely I will have, you know, the wind hit my face and be assured that all is well. And, you know, there's, there's something good and there's peace out there. But as far as saying, I know exactly what's going to happen in the future or has happened yeah, in the past. I, I, I don't think well, I, I, I also do. think that's more honest, right? I think, I mean, I'm not trying to take away from people who don't have the same doubts or concerns or, or, you know, who want to stay in the church. That's good for them. Um, but I, you know, I've had the same thing. I think Rob's talked about this quite a bit, you know, even as leaving a big church, he kind of got to this point where he was kind of feeling the same thing. And, and it's not that it's, it's hard to explain, I think, particularly to people who've, who are still in that space where, you know, right. Where they're super a hundred percent sure of everything. And I, I just, I just yeah, didn't feel well, I mean, it was honest. You know, I mean, there's some great, you know, I studied philosophy, obviously at Wheaton and, and there's some great. Uh, philosophize this is one of the best podcasts on on philosophy in my opinion but the you know one of Stephen west but one of the things he has a great podcast on you know um the limits of rationality and and one of the things that he gets into is you know when the enlightenment happened when we move from god you know the the answers to everything are is god you know there's this god constant if we don't know why it's god um, you know, it would be like creating a, uh, an equation that E equals MC squared, where C, the constant, is just God when you can't figure out what the, what the answer is supposed to be to make the equation work. Um, when we shifted from that, you know, where, right. where religion and, and this God constant was at the center of our knowledge to the Enlightenment, where science, you know, where we were had these great new tools where we could observe and refine and create models that we could hammer to, to really get better models for the universe for how we experience the world 
you know, which is science is great at. And, and we got these big quantum leaps in quality of life because of that, right? I mean, it's pretty hard to, to, to your point, it works pretty well. I mean, the, the quality of life for human beings in the world in 2019 and 20 is infinitely better than it was 100 years ago. Um, whenever we talk about time machines, you know, whenever I, I like to talk about time machines, right? Where would you I'm rather live? Visiting some of these time, times before, but I'll take some. I'll, I'll definitely take yeah. some antibiotics with yeah. me and some of the other things, right? Um, right. But like, you know, you you start thinking about some of that stuff, and I think where the Enlightenment really helped us was, you know, brought us. It gave us all these great new tools, but the problem. Stephen West does a great job talking about this. The problem is you had this opportunity to leave certainty behind and we didn't because certainty was still at the center of how we thought about the world. So we went from the certainty of God to the certainty of science when ultimately I think, you know, post enlightenment, what many philosophers have, have really, you know, there was a lot of frustration. You get a lot of frustration pretty quickly in philosophy when you realize you can, you can rationalize almost anything if you, if you take enough time, including things that are, you know, really illogical. And, and so it's that certainty that maybe we need to leave at the door rather than argue about whether it's, there's a, you know, a God out there in the universe or whether or not, you know, science is, is the, the be all and end all. I think certainty is, is the fundamental problem. And I think to your point, the honesty of saying, well, actually we don't know. We, we, you can believe it. You can love the idea of it. Those things are all good. There's nothing wrong with that, but let's be honest. No one's got a video camera in the afterlife. No one knows what really happens. We don't have any any pictures of God. We don't have any, you know, the only observational, you know, um, stories we have are, are you know, they're good, but they're limited. Um, and, uh, and so it's, and there's some conflicts in them. You know, there's a lot of issues. And so it's fine to have belief, but let's be honest that it's belief. It's not certainty. And there's very big distinctions between those. And I think that's where, as people progress through life and they're, they, they're constantly, re, you know, they're having honest reflection. It's very, very common for people to have serious doubts. And I think, I think to me, it's embracing those mysteries and learning to love the doubt that ultimately becomes maybe the more fulfilling yeah. process, right? It's not about getting answers. It's about wrestling with the questions. Um, it is. Yeah. And I think a lot about story and the importance of story to how humans, you know, we're all telling ourselves right. some sort of story to make sense of the world. And uh, the Christian story is one of those stories that and I don't mean to be offensive to anybody, you know, but it is a it's a way that makes sense of the world. And for me, for a long right. time, it made the best sense of any story, you know, just standing on. Uh, the the shoulders of giants like C.S. Lewis and those other sorts of people, you know, you're just like, okay, well, this this really does yeah. seem to pull everything together. And so it was a very good narrative uh, for me for a very long time. And I think I'm just still kind of exploring what, what are the other parts of it. But, you know, humans, we're bad with big numbers. We're bad with uh, statistics. We're bad, you know, this is why we had to create science was so that we could learn what was objectively true because if we don't use the scientific method or, you know, the statistical method, you end up telling yourself stories that right. you just make up. And I see it all the time in healthcare and well, you see it at whole you know, foods placebos lot, right? and everything else. And <laughs> pseudoscience. Yeah. Right. And it's not that science is the only story that's out there, but it's one that we can, we can kind of agree on that it's a reproducible sort of thing. I'm not saying it's going to give us meaning, but it is going to help no, us. It's, Obviously it's helped us in a lot of ways. So, Anyway, I don't know where we're getting. I, I just think story really is so powerful, and 
I like to think that we're in a in a bigger story and that uh, our place in this story matters and what we do day to day and the the people that we interact no, no, with. I, I uh, each of those weird. interactions matters. No, no, I, I think that's um, I think that's what separates I can, you, know, you know people from other animals. That you know, to your point, there's. There's literal truth. That's what you know. Science helps us with, and then there's there's you know there's there's metaphor, and I think you know post enlightenment a lot you know particularly in Protestant Christianity, which was kind of came out of the height of modern philosophy, the height of rationalism. Leibniz, Spinoza, and Descartes. You know, Calvin and 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 Luther come come right at that time. Um, you know, you you have this uh, this idea that we will make the, we our will is the most important thing. We will decide you know, our salvation effectively and, you know, rather than kind of embracing the mystery of it. And, and I, I guess the point of all that is, you know, one of the things that Augustine said, you know, hundreds of years before was, you know, literal truth is for children. The broader, the bigger truths really can only be encapsulated in, in story in metaphor. And, you know, if people believe that Jesus was God and, you know, people can take or leave that however they like to, let's say, let's assume that's true for this conversation. Um, what did God do walking around this earth when people pressed God for specific questions? You know, what about this? What about that? Almost every time Jesus responds with metaphor, right? With parables or with story. He, he has, God has the opportunity to answer right, the question, right. true or false, black or white, you know, on or off. You know, <laughs> But God didn't choose binary answers. God didn't choose literal truth to express the, the truths of the universe. God chose stories. And so I think to your point, both are important, but they're very different for different reasons and for different types of truths that you're trying to express. And I often think about the life of Jesus and say, okay, well, this is the son of God. This is the, you know, the Messiah. He was here, you know, 33 years. Um, What did he do those other 30 years? And was he as pleasing to God his father in those other 30 years than he was in those last three years where that we have all the recording and the things. And my, my feeling is that yes, he was. And I really resonate with, uh, you know, when Paul says, make it your ambition to work with your hands, lead a quiet life and, you know, basically love other yeah. people. I don't know no, the rest of the verse. I think I that's right. Know, but, it's, it's uh, you know, do the world. Yeah. that's kind of my life verse, you know, I don't want to say it's a life verse, but it's just well, something I think that that's the point I, of social I, justice, I right? Really Which is, strongly. um, I don't always agree with everybody on every element of social justice, but I think the, the fundamental idea is apply it, like get out there and do something, put your body, you know, embodied solidarity, put your body in the way of somebody who's you're seeing, you know, particularly some, some, someone in a minority position where they don't have any power. When you see them being oppressed, put your body in that, in, in the way of that. And, um, you know, I think it's the application, just like in, in philosophy and politics, the application is what gets interesting not just the idea, the execution of it. Um, last last question before we we pull off here. Um, help us understand because I you know I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's a lot of people talking about you know um, naturopathic remedies and and all these um, different supplements and tools out there. And I've certainly been involved in some of the some of that side of the world. But I also grew up in a family where you know my dad was a doctor. Um, and, you know, there was, there's limits to what doctors can actually even prescribe or offer patients. And this gets to, I think, this fundamental difference between a scientific, a formal scientific um, practice and worldview versus, you know, some of the, some of the uh, grayer areas that, that, you know, other um, 
you know, kind of health practitioners operate in, you know, massage therapists, chiropractors, et cetera. What, uh, why is it that, um, can you help us think about nutrition and medicine and, um, kind of the, where doctors are limited versus where some of these other health practitioners can, um, can explore areas that haven't been tested as much? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I, what we're here, at least what I feel like I'm here to do is I'm here to relieve suffering and suffering can take a lot of forms. And, and in fact, not all suffering is physical suffering and where modern, you know, allopathic medicine has really excelled is in finding a disease process and treating that physical disease process, you know, antibiotics, you've got a broken arm, we're going to fix it up this way. You've got uh, pressure on this nerve. We're going to relieve that pressure. You've got a cancer. We can remove that. These are the things that I'm familiar with. But people suffer in lots of ways that maybe aren't as uh, easily manifested physically. Or sometimes we try to use medicine to treat things that we shouldn't be treating. Um, somebody is worried about something or they get pain. I think maybe one of the the most dramatic examples of this are people who have this feeling that their hand right. or their arm isn't their own. Okay. They're suffering badly, but is the right thing to do to take off that arm? We amputate that arm and invariably end up amputating it all the way up to the top. It's kind of a mental, uh, I would call it a mental illness. So to treat that right. sort of a thing, I don't think surgery is the proper treatment for that. Um, but we have other stuff that's maybe not quite as obvious as that. So thumb, thumb arthritis is another common thing. I see this all the time. Some people suffer badly with it. Some people just ignore it and get on with their lives. They just say, oh, that hurts. And they just adjust how they do things and get on with their lives. Why is it that one person can cope with this and one person can't? Um, and everybody gets it. I mean, it's a universal thing that everybody's going to get. Um, so anyway, I'm not, I don't know that I'm giving you any conclusions here. The point is, I think we, we run into trouble when we try to use uh, allopathic physical things to treat suffering that may be more on the mental side of things. So I, I look at part of my job is to interact with this person, find out where they're coming out, find out what their fears are, find out what, what the problem is that they really need to have solved. Now, right. sometimes that's going to be, man, that's skin cancer. We got to take that off. Uh, that's fine. We're good at that. But we have done a poor job on the other side of things. And I think that's why, you know, maybe the massage therapist, the chiropractors, that sort of thing, where they get a lot of their traction and their um, their benefits from, they actually listen to people. They actually take the time to uh, interact with people's lives. But I do feel right. like probably a lot of the things end up being just placebo, uh, unless it's really fairly well say, studied. That's work? not wrong because placebo <laughs> right. works. <laughs> right. So I'll take I'll take placebo and, for my patients any I think, day. You know, and that's kind of the mind body connection, right? I mean the. My my brother in law is also a physician at ENT, yeah. and he likes to say, you know, doctors don't heal people. We we're trying to help their bodies heal themselves. Is that is that fair? Right. No, I think that's totally fair. I mean, you don't heal people. You 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 can intervene, but you're going to need to um, going to need to. Sorry, my computer just. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. Um, yeah, I mean, people people have a great capacity to heal themselves. Sometimes you have to intervene, but mostly it's it's not just. I think sometimes our treatments can cause suffering, and we've got to yeah. we've got to do a better job of communicating with people and finding out where they're coming from and realizing that you know, oh, gee, we cured your breast cancer, 
but that didn't end the suffering. Now you're missing a breast or you're right. going through radiation therapy or you can't swallow, you know, sure. your brother probably treats head and neck cancers. They get radiation, they get no saliva. It's just horrible. I mean, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's a place yeah, for lots I, of other I, I stuff. I just right. think it the, should uh, be properly studied. Uh-huh. I think I just sent you an, I just actually just sent you an email. I don't know if you got it or not about the cannabinoids and basically how poorly, right. you know, everybody's claiming all these things for the cannabis treatments. Uh, but a lot of it's very poorly studied. A lot of the compounds are contaminated and or not properly mixed or they don't even contain well, the stuff they you know, say they're the containing. It's really I, it was kind a good of a article. Disaster. One of the things that I think, you know, we just launched two CBD topicals. And, you know, what better companies are doing right now is, you know, we're, we're making certificates of analysis available by batch number we're transparent about our sourcing exactly so people can see that we have what we say we put in there and that it's um you know that it comes from good places you know that aren't contaminated but the the other piece of it is is not making claims i i'm a big proponent you know whether it's weight loss cbd pick your pick your poison you know these are all areas where you have tremendous amounts of anomaly and uniqueness and different people's bodies respond very differently to weight loss techniques, um, you know, which has behavior at the. I mean, somebody asked me in China, I was doing right. Well, and, and right. somebody asked me by if, far you the know, low, of that. You know, don't. Somebody said, you know, there's been some studies that show that using, you know, um, uh, non-nutritive sweeteners doesn't necessarily, you know, can can increase weight gain. And I said, well, if you actually read the studies. It shows that, you know, overweight people can gain weight on anything. Um, and, you know, it's because typically I think it, I said it's incredibly, you know, right. I think weight, weight loss and weight gain is very complicated because it's deals with dealing with human behavior. And, you know, there is no, there is no simple cure for this. It's, it's always involved in behavioral change, lifestyle change. And that's just, that's very, very hard work. But I think that's, you know, the same is the same is true in a way with CBD where, you know, when you, we've only discovered the endocannabinoid system you know we've got the respiratory system skeletal system nervous system the endocannabinoid system wasn't even discovered until the 1990s most people don't even know what it is and we certainly you know the studies on, around cbd and how that how cbd interacts with the cbd1 receptor in that in that system is very lightly studied um i think what people you know there's there have been some big breakthroughs with um, chronic seizures and, and, you know, maybe a few other things. But I think what most people notice when they try it is either it helps them sleep, it helps them with anxiety, or it, um, you know, it helps them with inflammation. And, and it has not been studied. So there, you know, we can't make any claims and we don't make claims. Um, our simple s- suggestion is try it, see if it helps you try it in these safe ways with safe products. And, um, you know, if it helps you great, if it doesn't great, but we try and set the expectations low and encourage people to, you know, if they have some of these issues right. to try it and, and see if it's going to give them relief. And, and ultimately I think that's, that's as much as we can hope for there for the, for the near future. Um, right. Well, I, I don't mean to bash the, I'm not trying to bash the supplement industry, but all the things that help sleep and all those other yeah, sorts exactly. of things, what also helps that is go outside, get daily exercise. Don't overeat. Don't eat too much sugar. I mean, it's ba- you know, being healthy, humans want to be healthy. Our bodies want to be healthy. All we got to do is exercise them. Don't feed them too much. Drink plenty of water. Use, you know, the 
whatever kinds of drugs you yeah. like and very much in moderation, yeah. including alcohol, especially don't smoke. And, uh, you know, push, pull, hinge and squat and run once in a while or get your heart rate up a few times a day and you're going to have a great life. In fact, if you, just go out and walk. I've been really learning how to walk yeah. everywhere. I'm starting to walk to work uh, about six miles away. Well, that's it takes one of the two things, hours. You know, and one of the things we notice when we're in like a place like Paris is people hey. don't necessarily eat a lot better than they do in the United States. But they walk. I mean, we walk 10 miles oh, a day. They walk like Paris, crazy, though, don't you know? they? Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. yeah. And you, you actually want to take a nap. You sleep you know? great. <laughs> well, you know, actually, you don't sleep. I take a nap and then I go out. But yeah, you know, I, I, I figure it out. But it's, that's, that's half the fun of it. Um, there's a book I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, recommend to you called yeah. Lamb by uh, Christopher Moore. I don't know if you've read that, but it's, you know, he makes this, it's a hilarious book about what he thinks Jesus was doing uh, before he, you know, prior to the gospels effectively. <laughs> yeah. Which well, a part of that is, is apparently, oh, cool. Um, cool. Well, it, it seems that he discovered coffee. <laughs> it's really funny. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I just really appreciate you making the time, Eric. You know, I know doctors are uh, billable, an hourly billable service. And uh, so we've, we've, this has been a very expensive podcast, but I appreciate you making the time for Kick Aspirational, for telling your personal stories and giving us some insights into how to get out and uh, create the life you want, which I think you've done very well. Yeah, same for me. Thank you. Thank no you. No problem. Eric. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. This has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast. Right. It Talk is uh, not a spectator sport. Uh, I'd love to get comments and questions. I'd love to hear uh, your your comments and questions in particular if you're listening to this. And uh, whatever you do this week, above all, please be Kick Aspirational.